are y'all? Good, good, good. Good to be here with you guys. Uh, no baby yet. Three, four days past our due date. So hopefully we will add another uh, Mayo in the male household, but no time in the next 45 minutes. That'd be really awkward, all right? So whoever's in the front row gets to come up and finish the sermon if that happens. But getting close to having a starting five for the WNBA. So we're excited about that. Um, Hey, a quick announcement, all right, for those of you who uh, are not Covenant members, uh, or if you are a Covenant member and you have not read your email, all right, uh, this is a new announcement for you, but uh, we just made our last hire this past uh, week, okay, and so we finally hired our associate pastor. I mean, that's like praise dance worthy, all right, like that's a good thing, all right. And so, super excited about that. Uh, Nick Brandt will be uh, starting eight days from tomorrow, Monday. So, uh, eight days from now. And uh, Nick was the pastor at Passion City, uh, Louis Giglio's church over in Atlanta for the past four years. He was our college pastor there. Uh, he was at UT uh, for a while. Uh, so, he's a Longhorn. Hook him. All right. Got to keep you Aggies in check. I'll be trying to take over. All right. So, keep y'all in check. But... Uh, we're excited. So more on that soon. Praise Jesus, uh, kind of full staff team there. So hopefully that will really mean some awesome things for us as a church. And uh, just in time, uh, we're about to have our baby. And so anything that you are confused by or disagree with in the sermon, you can talk to Christy or Nick and welcome them on staff, all right? Because I'm about to be out of here for two weeks. So uh, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and grab them. Uh, Genesis 38 is where we will uh, be at today. Um, and also just on that too, by the way, you'll get to meet Nick and get to uh, understand him, know him. When he's actually here, we'll kind of introduce him more, but just want to give you that announcement today. So uh, if you do not have a Bible, you want to use your smartphone, you can actually go to this link. Uh, you can also, on the Uversion app, open up uh, the uh, Well Austin. You can follow along that way. There's also physical Bibles under every second and third chair. Uh, if you do not own a Bible, I would encourage you to, even if you're not using that today, take, keep that. That's our gift to you. We want you to have the word to be able to read it during the week, so uh, please use that as well, okay? Casual uh, commentators uh, and uh, sort of intellectual scholars and just the lay leader and kind of everyone in between has been very, very perplexed at this specific chapter in Scripture, okay? We're in the story of Joseph, and then all of a sudden, what we are reading today sort of just like pops up at us in a really weird way. Not only does it not uh, just pop up, but we leave Joseph's narrative and enter into uh, this awkward story to really say the least, all right? If you're at all familiar with Judah and Tamar, then you know that, I mean, this is a really strange story. So if we thought that two weeks ago was awkward with Dinah and everything that happened there, like this one isn't as bad, but it may even be that much more awkward in some ways. So we are in for a treat, all right? Uh, really quick though, before we dive in, I want to give you something to think about, particularly if you're a skeptic. If you're a skeptic of Christianity or if you're a skeptic of the Bible, uh, I want to give us a quick thought as we enter into this text, okay? All scholars agree, both biblical and secular alike, that this book was written and finished several hundred or thousand years before Christ. If you are a conservative scholar in some ways, then you would say that Moses is the one who authored Genesis. This is the position that I personally hold. And that would mean that this was finished several thousand years before Jesus came onto the scene. Even the most liberal of commentators and ones who kind of have, uh, do not think that this is the inspired word of God and things like that, they would 
even still say that this book was finished at least 700 years before Christ. And so whether it's several hundred or several thousand, we know that this was finished before Christ. Now, this may not seem like anything special, but when we read this story, we are inevitably going to say, what in the world does that have to do with anything, right? Like, like why is this story in the Bible, okay? And here's the deal. Everything in this story points to Joseph being the promised seed of Abraham. Everything points to Joseph being the one that carries forth the torch, that receives the blessing. However, because we believe that scripture was inspired by God, when we read in light of that, when we realize that it is God himself who inspired this, then what we can know is that God actually knew the ultimate plan of redemption, even if man was kind of confused by that. Joseph was not the promised seed, nor was his line, even the promised line. It did not go through Joseph, but rather it went through Judah. It was the line of Judah that ultimately bore the seed to come, the Christ, the one who will save us from our sins. And so what may seem really random and what actually stumped Jewish commentators all the way up into the point of Christ became evident once Christ came onto the scene that actually the Messiah will come through the line of Judah. And so it's important then that we understand how this happened. How was it that Judah's sons were born? How was it that the seed was going to come? Because we see Joseph's sons being born. We see Judah's sons being born. But we don't get to see any other sons of Jacob being born to his children. And so these are the two that it highlights. And why in the world would we randomly highlight Judah when the promise goes goes through Joseph, we would assume. Y'all tracking with that? Does that make sense? And so uh, this isn't random. It's a part of redemptive history, in other words. And so when we say that we believe that scripture is God's word, we really mean that. Because what human author would take a story this awkward, completely leave the narrative that they're talking about, and focus on this story for just a chapter, and it, there's really no like really strong redemptive aspects in this story. It's just, it's an awkward story all, the, all together. But because we believe that God authored scripture through the pen of men, then we believe that God knows the end from the beginning. He knew the plan of redemption. He knew that it was through Judah that the Messiah would come. And so he wanted to make sure that that didn't get lost anywhere, that we were able to see how it tracked down. And so even the most liberal scholar who says this was finished 700 years before Christ, no human author could have kind of interjected this in in time in order to say, oh, actually, actually, it was Jesus, the, the line of Judah, actually it was him. The whole time the line of Judah gets persevered in these really strange ways throughout scripture because God is doing whatever it takes to bring forth the Messiah because he wants to save mankind because he wants a relationship with us. Are y'all tracking with that? And so if you're a skeptic, like this story by itself should really make you take pause at the scriptures and say, man, what human author would add this in? Why would you add this in if it wasn't pointing to the greater narrative of Scripture, the, the grand scheme of it, okay? So I want to give us that because this is a very awkward story and sort of strange and feels out of place. But when we read in light of the whole narrative, in light of the gospel, it's going to all make sense, okay? So Genesis chapter 38, we're going to pick it up here in verse 1. Y'all ready? Three people. Let's do this. 
It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adullamite whose name was Hira. So first we notice that Judah actually left his family. And so Judah just sold his brother into slavery and then apparently he's kind of had enough of the covenant family of God, okay? Immediately, I actually think a lot of us in here can kind of relate with that because to put it into our context, it's kind of like somebody who grew up in a Christian home and then kind of had enough of that at some point in their life and they decided to just kind of walk away from Christianity or God or the church or whatever it may be. This is what Judah did. Judah grew up in the covenant family. He understood Yahweh. He knew the promises of God. It makes clear even throughout this text, but he kind of had enough with that. And so he leaves his brother. He goes into another land. He makes new friends, quote unquote, non-Christian friends, if you will, and just kind of starts living his life. So I think a lot of us in here have been at that experience. We grew up in the church and kind of rejected it at some point in our life. And I think immediately we can kind of relate to Judah then, right? This is a, a, a redemptive story already in and of itself. Verse 2, there Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. He took her and went into her, and she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Ur. She conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onim. Yet again she bore a son, and she called his name Shelah. Judah was in Shazib when she bore him, okay? So the verb is the exact same verb that we see in the story of Eve. Eve saw that the tree was uh, pleasurable to the eye and took of it and ate. In fact, every single seed of Eve, you have those two verbs somewhere in their line. They saw and then they took. And here again, we see Judah, he sees and then he takes. In other words, Scripture is trying to show us this is not the promised one to come. This is not the seed that will redeem mankind. He makes the same mistake that Adam and Eve does. He sees and then takes. He does not submit to God. Okay, so Judah has kind of uh, X'd himself out of being the possible Messiah. I guess the whole selling your brother into slavery last week thing, that, that's an X out too there. Okay, but uh, Judah, essentially, he uh, goes and marries a king. Something that both Abraham and Isaac very clearly warned against. So this was not what God's people were supposed to do. And so Judah's like, fam, skip this. I'm wilding out. Right? Like that's what Judah said. Or no longer am I going to live a moralistic lifestyle. All right? I will take pleasure in my natural desires. That's our non-ebonics version. Okay? So Judah says, hey, I'm doing whatever I want to do. Right? Like I'm going out. I'm living my life. I'm doing what I want to do. So Judah also isn't that great of a dad. Like look at this text here. Okay, in verse 2, or with Ur, I say he names his child, but then with Onan, uh, she names the child, and then with Sheila, he's not even around. He's in a whole other place. He's in Shazeb, right? And so literally we see this progression of worseness happening with Judah. He is absent. He names the first one. She names the second one. He's not even there for the third one. We see him kind of forsaking responsibility in some ways. We could dive into that a little bit more, but I'm sure you get the picture. Judah is not being painted as the most delightful character. If J or Joseph last week stepped on the scene as a bratty do-gooder. Judah steps on the scene as a slave trader, uh, rejecting God worshiper, just kind of oh, actually a really bad guy, right? And so this is the context. Verse 6. And Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of the brother-in-law to her and rise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew the offspring would not be his. So whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground so as not to give the offspring to his brother. 
And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death also. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up. For he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. So the story starts to get a little bit strange here, right? Don't worry, it gets even better than this, all right? But Ur is wicked. We're not really told why, okay? But the Lord then puts him to death. Actually, the first time that we see it explicitly mentioned, and one of the only times in Scripture, that for some reason God doesn't even, like, give him a a chance, if you will, to repent. He's so wicked that he's ruining everything around. And so I'm sure God's trying to reach out, trying to reach out. And then at some point it's like, no, this is too much, right? He's unraveling everything. So the Lord actually puts him to death. We don't know why, but it just says that. And then Onan goes, and in that culture, you're supposed to fulfill your brother's rights. It's a leveret marriage. And so essentially, uh, what happens is, is you go, you perform that, and you either take your brother's wife in as your wife, if you're unmarried, or you give her a child so that the inheritance will stay within the family. But Onan is probably selfish, and if she doesn't have a child, then he'll get double inheritance. Not only will he get Ur's portion, but he'll get his own portion too. But if he performs his right, then that son will get that portion. And so Onan doesn't really do what he wants to do. Now, ironically, or what he's supposed to do, ironically, if he had actually fulfilled this, there's a possibility that he would be in the very line of the Messiah. But he's selfish. He does what he wants to do, not what God's called him to do, not what the law calls him to do. And so he rejects, he's disobedient, totally misses out on having his name etched into redemptive history, all right? And then he spills his semen on the ground. This is why we have children's ministry. It just got real, right? If you want to have somebody read a really awkward verse in community group this week, just have them read that verse, all right? Especially if they weren't at church, they won't know what to do. So Judah then comes and he says, this woman's cursed, right? And I'm not giving her my last son. He doesn't recognize that actually it may be him or his sons that there's a problem. He immediately attaches it to that woman. And so he then does something really shady. He's supposed to now, as the father, take her in and take care of her because his sons no longer can. And apparently his youngest son is too young. But instead of doing that, he sends her back off to her own father where she would have kind of lost all privilege and right. So he kind of still holds the responsibility mantle, but totally shifts that responsibility onto somebody else. He doesn't do what he's supposed to do once again. And so we see Judah really rejecting all of his responsibilities there. Judah just kind of wants to live his own life is what it is. I don't want responsibility. I don't want to think about God. I don't want to go to church. I don't want to do that. I just want to live my own life, right? And so he kind of does what he wants to do with no regard for the consequence of other people. But God keeps being gracious and he keeps forcing these really awkward moments in Judah's life forcing them upon him because God is going to redeem Judah and Judah cannot run away from the grace of God no matter how hard he tries. It's also true of us. Keep reading, verse 12. In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. When Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to the sheep shears and he and his friend Hira the Adolamite. And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear sheep, she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up, and sat at the entrance of Enaim, which is on the road of Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown up, and she had not been given to him in marriage. Judah is a fraud, not keeping his promise. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, come, let me come into you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, what will you give me that you may come into me? 
And he answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, if you give me a pledge until you send it, he said, what pledge shall I give you? She replied, your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her and she conceived by him. Then she arose and went away, taking off her veil and she put on the garments of her widowhood. Man, oh man, it just got awkward, right? So is it like uncomfortable? Like people are like kind of like, I want to laugh smile, but I don't want to actually laugh. It's all right. Okay, it's uncomfortable for all of us, but especially me, I'm teaching on it, right? <laughs> Got to say the word semen over and over. So Tamar, okay, realizes that Judah isn't doing what he is supposed to do. And so she actually goes and she kind of takes action here. Now, notice in verse 12, Judah's wife dies, but in verse 15, he's sleeping with a prostitute, <laughs> So Judah probably doesn't really care that much that his wife even died. He's absent. He's not involved in the naming of the children. He's kind of halfway taking responsibility, but not really. And also the woman is never even given a name in scripture. It's always Judah's wife. We see Tamar has a name. His sons have a name. Even uh, Judah's friend, right, Hira has a name. But the wife doesn't. And so Judah has completely forsaken responsibility there. Wife dies. He shows no real remorse. He immediately goes and finds a prostitute. And look at the difference here between him and Tamar. Tamar has to take off her, uh, her, her weeping garments, her, her mourning garments. She's still mourning for the death of her husband, Judah's son. And this is way after the fact. And so she is kind of uh, juxtaposed against him as this righteous woman in some ways. And he, this wicked woman, though, she is a Canaanite, a non-Yahweh worshiper. And he's supposed to be a covenant people of God. He's supposed to be a Christian, if you will, but he's totally not acting like it by any way, shape, or form. Judah then goes to hang out with his friend to find prostitutes. Which, by the way, every single time Hira, the Adullamite, is mentioned, Judah does something absurd and terrible. Every time in this story, which kind of goes as a quick moral, who you hang around is who you will become. Pick your friends wisely, right? He no longer wants to be associated with anybody who will keep him accountable, so he picks reckless fellows, and these fellows always get him into this trouble. Notice in verse 17 as well, she doesn't even finish her sentence. She's trying to like get assurance of him, right? And you see this right here? It's like a dot, dot, dot for us, right? Like she's like, uh, 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 if you give me a pledge until you send it, what? and it's like she's going to do it. He's like, no, which one, right? What, what do you want? What pledge do you want? And so he kind of cuts her off. All he really cares about is sex. So he is just a guy who kind of views women as objects. He is his wife and this prostitute. He has no real uh, 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 direction in life. He's just doing what he wants to do. He's wayward in some ways. He's only focused on his natural desires. This is our man, Judah. And so they have sex. She gets pregnant, his daughter-in-law. And then once again, remember, we've highlighted this almost every week from here on out. There's another you reap what you sow moment in here. Jacob tricks his daddy, uh, Isaac, with clothing, right? Jacob, Judah's daddy, tricks with clothing. Judah tricked Jacob with clothing. Remember Jacob or uh, Joseph's robe last week? And then here, Tamar tricks Judah with clothing. She's veiled, so he cannot see her. In fact, all three of those instances involve clothing and goats, the first one, they killed a goat and wore goat skin and cooked a goat. The second one, they killed a goat and dumped the, the, the coat's blood in the goat. And this third one, they are having sex for a trade for a goat. All of them involve clothing and goats. 
In other words, God is trying to get these men attention, right? He's trying to grab their attention in some way using every means possible to try to highlight, I am after you, right? Like, I want you. Look at what you're doing. You're throwing your life away. You're ruining it just like your grandfather Jacob, just like your daddy, right? Just like your brother, whatever it may be, you're ruining it. God's using every means possible to try to show him, hey, don't do this, right? Even the same uh, 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 clothes and goats, etc. God uses every means possible to try to get our attention too. It's why the random Christian showed up at your job and sat next to you and they weren't really what you thought they were, right? Or it's why all of a sudden you got put in this situation or you ran into this person at a grocery store. We learned you had a prayer and worship night this, Sunday, or this past Wednesday. Or you, whatever it may be, God is trying to put you in a place to draw you back into relationship with himself. And he does this over and over and over again. He's doing it here to Judah. But Judah doesn't see it. He's blind. Let's keep reading. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend, the Adullamite, to take uh, back the pledge from the woman's hand. He did not find her. And he asked the men of the place, where is the cult prostitute who is at Anaim at the roadside? And they said, no cult prostitute has been here. So he returned to Judah and said, I have not found her. Also, the men of the place said that no cult prostitute has been here. And Judah replied, let her keep the things as her own, or we shall be laughed at. You see, I sent this young goat, and you did not find her. So Judah realizes the embarrassment that this would be if he kind of gets caught in this. So he says, hey, let's just keep this. But think about the irony here. He has the honor to send this uh, prostitute a goat, but not the honor to send his son to the same woman. Now, obviously, he doesn't know it's the same woman, but he has the honor to honor a prostitute, but not to honor his own daughter-in-law by giving them his son, which he was supposed to do. His morals are all out of whack as well, right? He's all over the place. He's just deciding for himself, thinking what he thinks is right and wrong, wise and unwise, etc. And he made his friend do it. Right? He tells the Adullamite, hey, you go take this goat and go find that prostitute. Right? Now, this is Tory. Okay? This is not scripture. This is my theory as to what's going on there. Right? My theory is because he grew up in a God-fearing household, he still had morality working on his heart. He knew that he shouldn't be sleeping with this prostitute. He knew that he shouldn't be giving her pledges. He kind of knew. So instead of him going and doing it, he made his friend go and do it who didn't really have the same morality because deep down, I believe he's still really wrestling with God in some ways here. He just keeps trying to suppress it, to shut out that loud voice that's screaming out at him in some ways. He feels conviction and tries to shut out that conviction. He probably knew he shouldn't have done it, but he's trying to use his friend to do it anyway. So he's running all over the place, trying to run away from his past, no direction for the future. And then verse 24 comes. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. (laughs) Okay. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. The English does this sentence no good. Okay. In the Hebrew, Judah says two words. He says, take, burn. <laughs> what? <laughs> like, how callous has this man become, right? Doesn't even, he doesn't even say a complete sentence. Hey, your daughter-in-law, she's, she's, she's been prostituting around. She's pregnant. Take, burn, <laughs> okay? Completely blind to his own hypocrisy that actually three months prior he had done the exact same thing with the prostitute by immorality. And so he is actually probably thinking here, yes, here's how I get rid of this problem. 
right? He didn't want to give the daughter to the, or his son to his daughter-in-law, and now she's been immoral. Man, there we go. Maybe even a sense of like, oh, thank you, God. Now, now I can use the law to my advantage. Now I can use the law that says, hey, you shouldn't do prostitution. The person should be uh, uh, stoned, actually. But he actually uh, ups the ante and says she should be lit on fire. So not only killed as, a, as a, a repercussion, but even suffer in the midst of that. He is hard-hearted, but he's probably found a way to get around his situation. Now he's using God's law for his advantage. Now he's using what he wants to do. So he's all over the place, right? It's painful how hardened this guy has become. Verse 25. As she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, by the man whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, please identify whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. All right? Notice she's in the action. She is being drug out. They probably bust into her house, grab her. They are dragging her over to burn. And she says, oh, uh, 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 wait a minute. Uh, I actually have the guy who did it too. Whose are these? Sucker! <laughs> right? And so she pulls it here. All right? And so, in other words, hey, if I'm going to get burned, whoever these are should get burned as well, father-in-law, who's the one that pronounced this judgment, right? And so she uses this to her advantage. Let's finish the story. Verse 26. Then Judah identified them and said, she is more righteous than I. Since I did not give her to my son, Sheila, and he did not know her again, when the time of her labor came, there was twins in her womb. And when she was in labor, one put out a hand, and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, this one came out first. We're going to do that this pregnancy, too. Just kidding. But as he drew back his hand, behold, the brother came out, and she said, what a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore, his name was called Perez. Afterward, the brother came out with the scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called Zerah. Okay? For those of you who uh, think the Bible is dull... Just haven't read it enough, right? Like, you haven't dived deep enough. Like, this is not dull. What a crazy story, right? Not only is this just a story, it's actually the story of redemptive history, of God taking these moments and redeeming the world to himself. Like, like this is the story that we get. What kind of crazy story is this, right? And so what does it mean for our lives, all right? How, how can we apply this? Well, I really think there are hundreds of applications, literally, but I just want to focus on a couple real quick. Judah is our main character that we can relate to. We've already talked about this a lot. He doesn't care. He has a hardened heart. And only when he realizes his sin does he begin to soften. And then at that moment, he's actually changed. He's a changed man. Because here's the deal. From this moment on, Judah's actually a beast, all right? Like literally, from this story on, Judah is a monster for the faith. He kills it, okay? He actually goes back to his brothers, we see. And then he begins to take leadership again. All of a sudden, he uh, returns to the covenant people, if you will, walks back into the church for our context, just so we know what's going on here. Judah actually takes these two sons, these kind of illegitimate sons, and he actually raises them, and they end up being, it seems like, pretty solid guys. So he now is a father all of a sudden. Later, Judah leads his family into Egypt, and when there's a point of contention, Judah actually risks his own life and offers his own life life as a sacrifice to save his brothers, you know, the ones that he left beforehand. He's so changed by literally this moment that he actually gives his own life as a ransom for his brother's lives. And so all over the place, Judah is redeemed in a lot of ways. He's changed by this low, low, low moment in his life. Many of us need Tamars in our life to expose our need for grace. Many of us need Tamars to expose our need for grace 
Judah thinks he's good on his own, doesn't really need the grace of God, and within that, he literally condemns himself. He condemns himself. And what happened here is that he looked at her and said, she should be burned, not realizing that he should be burned as well. He condemns her, and then that falls right back on himself. And so what happens here is that Judah actually has a spiritual awakening. He has a, a, a revival. It's his come-to-Jesus moment here with Tamar, okay? Tim Keller says this. He says, spiritual revival is when you see people you used to despise and realize you're no better than they are. When you realize you're just as bad as the people you despise, you're beginning to have a spiritual breakthrough. You're actually starting to kind of understand the gospel. See, Judah was running away from the Lord. God was doing whatever it took to draw him back into the covenant family, back, back into community, back into relationship with himself. He was a lost sheep that God left the fold to go out and to find, to put it in a gospel story context. But here's the deal. Some of us Okay, we, we think that when uh, lost sheep are found, that they kind of like frolic over to their owner and they're like, thank you for finding me, okay? That's the picture we get. And the owner's carrying the sheep back and petting it on the way. But that's actually not what happens. When a sheep is lost, it gets scared and it gets confused and it gets nervous. And when the owner finally does come, the sheep is terrified and it starts running away from the owner even more. That or it starts trying to kick the owner in some ways. And so the owner has to either break the sheep's leg or wrestle the sheep down, turn it upside down and tie up its feet so it can't kick or run away. Now, when the shepherd is breaking the leg or tying the legs up of the sheep, do you think the sheep thinks, boy, oh boy, golly, my shepherd sure does love me. Right? No, by no means is that what he's thinking, right? The sheep is scared in some ways. And oftentimes, when God has to bring us back into the family, he has to break our legs. He has to wrestle us down and tie us up because we're kicking and we're screaming and we're running because we're scared or we're nervous or we feel like maybe we might be judged or, or we know the wrong that we've done or, or we're confused or we're frustrated or we're angry at God. And when he's trying to bring us back into the family, I think a lot of us respond like the sheep do, as Judah does here, keeps trying to run, kind of kick against God. God called his attention several times throughout the story, but he didn't get it until he was about to get himself burned, right? God uses Tamar's in our life to reveal our own brokenness, to often reveal our need for redemption. He uses them to draw us back, these low moments, these conflicting moments in some ways. See, Judah is all messed up without even realizing it until he realizes it, and then he gets it, and then it utterly changes this man. Judah shows us that God can redeem the messed up people. So messed up people, a.k.a. all of us, take heart. No situation is too far removed from God to be able to redeem. There is no sin. There is no uh, 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 lifestyle. There is no whatever it may be for God to come in and to redeem it and to bring you back into family and to give you relationship back with himself. God will do what it takes. He will come out and he'll wrestle with you as we saw in Jacob's life or he'll wrestle with Judah here in a very different sense and he'll bring you back into the fold. So you may have turned your back against Christianity. You may have turned your back against God, but God has not turned his back against you. God will do what it takes to draw you back into the family. You're not too far from being able to be redeemed. Christians, we need to realize from this story that we are not as good as we think we are. We're not as good as we think we are. Okay? 
What about Tamar? I mean, think about it. She slept with her father-in-law, all right? Uh, there's actually scripture that says this is against the law, okay? And so Tamar actually does something that is inappropriate. In fact, notice, Judah does not say she is righteous. He says she is more righteous than I, right? Nowhere in this story does it commend her for doing the right thing in any way. It doesn't honor her for doing something that's actually against the law. She was kind of put in a lose-lose situation. And what she did was she was trying to find a way to redeem it herself. She was kind of showing she wanted into the covenant people of God. She wanted into even this messed up family. Like she probably could have went and been a Canaanite, but there was something there that she wanted into the covenant people and she was trying to do what it takes, even though it wasn't the appropriate thing to do. In fact, what she did was completely against the law, but rather what Genesis is showing us, that God can take what man plans for evil and God can turn it to good. God will take these moments and he'll turn it into his glory in some ways. Simply put, she shows that God can redeem messed up situations. God can take these messed up situations we're in and redeem it. And here's the crazy thing, okay? It's the thing I want us to all get in here. She gets blessed despite her sin. In fact, both Judah and Tamar in this story both receive blessing despite the fact that they are really kind of not right people in some ways. So, and uh, they both get blessed despite their obedience. Now, there is blessing and obedience. It is better to be in the will of God than to face the consequences of sin. That is true. But what the story actually shows us is that blessing does not come by obedience. It comes by the sheer grace of God. Neither of them deserved to be blessed, to be redeemed, to be made new, but both of them actually received it. Not only that, but they actually got so many rewards. Judah walks in and is immediately made a leader of the family again as if he didn't even sin in the first place. Neither really trusts God. Both of them take matters into their own hands, yet God takes the situation, he completely redeems it. They both receive blessing, yet they're disobedient. Does that make you mad? Because I'm honest, it kind of makes me mad if I actually think about it because I feel like I'm kind of a good person, okay? And I try to follow God really, really hard and I try to keep his laws and I read my Bible and I pray and I make disciples and I try to submit myself to scripture and yet there are times that God gives this blessing upon a people who I kind of think don't really deserve it by any means because look at me, I'm in the family, right? It's a prodigal son story. I'm sure that when Judah came back and the father elevated him to be over the brothers in some ways, I think that there was this moment where all of a sudden, like, like look, there's wrestling with this, right? Like the brothers are probably like, wait a minute, Judah is getting the blessing? Well, what about me? And I feel that way a lot of times. This thinking, if we see it, is us thinking that we are better than we are. It's thinking that our goodness is what gives us our blessing, but here's the scandalous thing. The gospel would actually take that and to flip it directly on its head. It's actually hypocrisy. And when you see your hypocrisy, when you see that you do not deserve the blessing of God and yet you get it anyway, that's when you begin to have spiritual revival. That's when you begin to have breakthrough. That's when you begin to get it. When you realize that you are just as bad as the person or the people group that you despise, that's when you're beginning to finally understand that, look, this is by grace and grace alone, okay? So you are Donald Trump. You are Donald Trump. Not him, you are, right? You are Black Lives Matter. 
You are the racist. You are the, the rap star that objectifies women. You are the, the homeless person who's lazy and just needs to go get a job. You are the spoiled, privileged kid who's driving around with his mommy and daddy's money, driving a Tesla, that Model T, right? You are LGBT. You are the conservatives. You are whoever you kind of look at and despise in some ways. Your heart is just as dark. You judge them for things that you don't like that they are doing, and then you turn around and do the exact same thing in a different type of context, yet you say, burn, Take, burn, yet you do not want to be taken and burned yourself. You want the grace of God in your life, yet you condemn others in their lives. You look down upon them because you're so much better than Donald. You're so much better than this group, not realizing that we are actually in the same boat. You are Judah. You say take and burn, yet you don't want to be taken and burned, right? When you get that, when you finally see that, that's when all of a sudden revelation begins to happen. You begin to recognize your need for the grace of God in your life. This is what happened to Judah. His morality did not show him that he needs to better, be a better person. It was actually his immorality that showed him, you need the grace of God. You need somebody to come in and to redeem this situation. And when Judah looks at her and says, she is more righteous than I, does this not remind us of something, friends? See, the, the greater Judah the Lion of Judah, the one through whom would save the world, the promised seed that would come through Judah's very own loins, does the same thing. Judah looks at Tamar and says, righteous, despite her sin. Jesus looks at you, and if you believe in him, he says, righteous, despite your sin. Jesus, though, is actually able to give us that righteousness because Jesus was the only perfect one. And see, now all of a sudden we see the upside-down kingdom, that the kingdom of God is received in the exact opposite way that we tend to think. Rather than working ourselves into the uh, kingdom of God, working ourselves into this moment of grace, it's actually Christ who comes and works for us. And then despite our sin, looks at us and says, righteous. I give you righteousness. I will redeem you. Not only should we not take and burn you, we will actually elevate you in some ways. God redeems us in these beautiful ways. Once you understand how undeserving of the gospel you are, that's when it will begin to make sense. That's when all of a sudden you can live a life where you are a blessing to others and where you give your life away for others because then you're finally getting it. We are all Judas in need of God's grace. We are all people, if we are serious about our own hypocrisy, our works do not measure up to the grace of God. We do not deserve heaven. We deserve burning. And yet instead, God removes this from us if we believe in him and says, righteous, despite us not actually deserving it. So when we think we deserve something because of our works, that's called moralism. When we realize that it's actually only by the grace of God, that's called Christianity. We believe in Jesus, right? This is the upside-down kingdom. Everything in the world says work and you'll be blessed. Christ works and then gives you blessing. This is humbling. And only when we see this can we be free. But we may say, well, wait a minute. Well, what about works? Where, where do works come in? 
Works are a clear indication of this very thing. So when we work without realizing how depraved we actually are, it's usually selfishness that we're working out of. But when we realize I have nothing to offer, I am a lowly man, I am not a righteous man or woman, and then we receive the grace of God, then when we work, will we actually be able to bless others around us because we won't need to feel good about ourselves or to prove ourselves in our work, but in reality, we'll be operating out of the grace of God. See, Judah receives the grace of God, and then his life is changed. The rest of his life, he works, and his works are beautiful and good because he has received grace. He's getting it. He had a spiritual revival. He realized how messed up he was, and he realized that God was willing to save him anyway. And the same is true with us. Bruce Walkie says this, It is utterly astounding that Judah, in connection with the 12 sons of Jacob, has his name written on the gates of heavenly Jerusalem in Revelation 21, verse 12. He stands as a witness to God's amazing grace. He fails as a son of the covenant. He fails as a father. He fails as a father-in-law. Even the worst of sinners can enter heaven by God's redemptive grace. I want you guys to see this, this grace Grace will not taste good until you realize how in need of it you are. But when you realize how in need of it you are, you will fall on your face and worship our God. When you realize how much it should be you that's take, take, burn. When you realize that should be you and that does not happen to you. You fall on your face in worship. It is by grace and grace alone that we are saved. And Judah proves that. Judah is saved and then God uses him. He redeems him so much so that we'll get to heaven and on a gate we'll read Judah. And we will see that and we'll remember that because it is by grace and grace alone that we are saved. And when we get that in our life, it changes us and it lets us bless others around us. Friends, I pray that we will be a church that is humbled, humbled by God's grace, knowing that we do not deserve to even breathe right now. But God in his graciousness, he looks at us and says righteous because Christ is willing to pay for all of those sins. He is willing to take it on himself that you may be made whole. Friends, we need the gospel. We need the gospel. And when we get it, we become a changed people and we're able to give our lives away for the sake of others. I love you guys. Let's pray. Man, God, I pray, Lord, A, for those of us who, who, who don't believe in you, who are wrestling with you right now. God, maybe we are like Judah, we're just kind of running away from you or, or trying to be our own gods, do our own things. I pray that even today, pride would be laid down. And that we would be able to say, God, you are more righteous than I. I'm a sinner. I need your redemption. God, I pray that even today, people would throw themselves before your grace. Stop trying to work for their redemption. Stop trying to run away from you and that they would be saved, God. Man, please, Holy Spirit, do that. Do that in our lives, God. Those of us who have trusted in you, Lord, we're, we're all over the place. God, I pray that in your grace, even for us, that you would help us not be into ourselves, 
thinking that our works prove our righteousness or, or, that, or that we need to prove ourselves in some way, shape, or form. God, help us to have a spiritual revival. Help us to be able to be men and women that are, are moved by your grace, that are humbled by the grace of God that you have given us, and then help us to bless other people in light of that, God. Lord, we need you. I am a foolish man. I am a hypocritical man. God, we are a hypocritical people when we forget how beautiful your grace is. Help us not to do that, God. Praise in your very beautiful name. Amen.